Jim Bennett, welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you this morning? I am thrilled to be here. Yeah, good. Glad to have you back for part two of this uh, multi-part episode or multi-part series where we're going to go into your response about the CES letter um, last time, a few days ago. So today is January 29th, 2019. A few days ago, you and I recorded part one. I just got done editing that. I'm actually, I'll send it to you if you wanted to give it a listen. Okay. Um, I'll send it to you here when we get done today recording. But for the listener, we covered a little bit of ground. We covered treasure digging. Well, first we started off, Jim, just letting you tell a little bit of your story. We talked a little bit about your father, uh, how his books had some uh, significant influence on me. Uh, We talked about treasure digging, the first vision. And then we started to get into the Book of Mormon, and we got as far as talking a little bit about the translation method, as well as the plausibility of some of the stories that are there. And uh, I wanted to kind of pick up there where we left off, and I ended the last episode throwing out that, for me, I get there are these things that we point to as evidence, uh, chiastic structures, uh, some of the... Geography, things from the old world where Nephi travels and gets to Nahum, for instance, or where there's this perfect, luscious place right where Bountiful should uh, be. The, that I think that's what they called the, the city there uh, right. in the old world, where they used the trees and had the fauna and stuff to, to prepare themselves for this journey to the new world. Uh, and there are other things, too. There, are, uh, I know Dan Peterson has pointed to what looks like a Jewish festival, for instance. I know that uh, Jack Welsh and others have pointed to various little things in the Book of Mormon that they consider evidence. At the same time, I wanted to point back and say, for me, I see those. Uh, I, I, don't, I see those as having some strength, but I don't see them as having the same amount of strength as I look across the story and I see throughout the narrative stories that seem deeply implausible to me. And, and we talked about a few of those. Jaredite barges, Nephi's trans-oceanic vessel, um, the story of the, the prison coming down and the, the two Nephite uh, men walking out of the prison. Uh, there's other stories too. There's, there's one story where among the Nephites and the Lamanites where one goes into the fortifications of another and passes along alcohol and everybody falls asleep and oh, right. they're all yeah. caught off guard. It just, it for me, again, it just seems like something that's implausible. And the one I really wanted to point out was the 2000 Stripling Warriors, which we talked about last time. I'm just simply referencing it as a story that seems so deeply improbable uh, and, and implausible that it seems so unlikely that for me, as I look at all these kinds of events in the Book of Mormon, I eventually go like, oh, it's, it feels like it's mythical fiction. Uh, but I did want to at least give you a chance to respond to that statement before we moved on. Sure. Well, you know, when you're talking about myths and you're talking about fiction, I mean, one of the things Hugh Nibley used to talk about with regard to the Book of Mormon is the lack of really extravagant sorts of miracles. You know, you talked last time about the Bhagavad Gita and spells being cast and people being turned into animals and that kind of thing. Uh, and you really don't see that kind of magic in the Book of Mormon. You, you see things that you would consider improbable, uh, but at the same time, 
when you're talking about miracles and you're talking about what the Lord is capable of doing, um, I, I think when you look at ancient scripture and you look at ancient literature, that you're seeing a, a great deal of 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 uh, you know, attempts to describe things in ways that would not be familiar to modern audiences. Uh, that they're interpreting as miracles, but that if we were to go back in time and actually witness them, uh, they wouldn't seem as improbable. We'd be able to see what's going on there. And I think very often when we talk about miracles, we're talking about interpreting God's hand in something that happens that someone else could look at and interpret as, as uh, oh, well, that's just a coincidence or that's, you know, that that really isn't miraculous. You know, I, I go back in my own experience. I, I, I want to tell you a, a lovely story that I've actually committed to song. I won't sing you the song, but I wrote an article about it for the Deseret News. I call it the miracle of the Christmas poo. Are you excited? Oh, that's got me thrilled. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about this last night with my family. Uh, so in Christmas of 2006, um, uh, my my youngest son was a, a year and a half old, and it was the day before my daughter's baptism. And we had a lot of family in town that were coming to the baptism. And Christmas night, I burned up all of the wrapping paper. You know, we'd filled up all of our recycling bins and all of our trash with all of the all of the leftover from Christmas. And I and so I burned everything up. And my wife said, "You really need to clean that up." And so I dumped hot ash into a plastic um, trash bin, the, the ones that say, do not dump hat, hot ash. That's where I dumped the hot ash and thought that I was fine. And in the middle of the night, uh, my son, who had been sleeping through the night for quite a long time, had this huge blowout diaper. And that never happens. And yet we went in there, I cleaned it up, and whenever he'd had a wet diaper in the middle of the night, I'd usually just toss it in the garage and not take it all the way out to the trash. But this was such a mess that I took it all the way out to the trash and found that the trash can had been burning and burned all the way down to the ground. And the next day, my brother-in-law, who's an electrician, came over after the baptism and said, okay, this burned from the top down, but it was right next to this other trash and you were about 10 minutes away from having this explode from the bottom and catch your eaves on fire and burn down your house. You were about 10 minutes away from really burning down your house. And I look at that and say, okay, well, there are naturalistic explanations for this, but the number of coincidences that, you know, this just happened to be the one night when my son you know, had this explosive diaper and this just happened to be the one time I walked out to take it out to the trash and all of this. And, and I look at that and I see God's hand in that and say, someone was looking out for me and someone else can look at that experience and say, well, this was just a coincidence. There's nothing amazing about this. But so when, when you start talking about miracles, you're, you're talking about whether or not you interpret God's hand in whatever it is that happens. And I think the miracles in the Book of Mormon, and I think the way the ancients interpreted events was very much, okay, well, God had a hand in this. 
And I think somebody else could come and look at it and go, oh, well, you were just lucky or, oh, you know, we talk about the armies of Helaman. I compared that to uh, the victory at Agincourt of uh, Henry V, where he talked about how God fought with him, whereas historians look back and say, well, the reason why there were so few casualties is you had superior technology. You had the longbow and the French did not. And therefore, of course you won. And there was no miracle to that. But I think very often miracles require interpretation. And when I look at the Book of Mormon, I interpret the Book of Mormon itself as a tangible miracle. I have yet to see anybody that has provided a a satisfying alternative explanation for its origins. And, and many people have talked about it and tried. And of course, it's the church's responsibility to be able to defend the explanation that Joseph Smith gave as to the Book of Mormon's origins. But I think miracles are very much um, interpretation. And I think you're seeing that kind of interpretation in the text of the Book of Mormon. I think that if you were to go back in time and witness whatever it was that Helaman and the Stripling Warriors were doing, you'd be able to come up with a naturalistic interpretation of what was happening there. But Helaman's interpretation was God fought with us and we didn't lose anybody because there was a miracle. And we don't know if he had the high ground or he had superior technology or anything else. He, he leaves that out. He's much more interested in the reader understanding that God was involved in what was happening. So, so that's kind of the way I interpret that. And, and I think the very experience of mortality is one where we are never going to get the kind of indisputable proof that would not allow people to interpret events as being uh, naturalistic and having no influence from God. Uh, and I, I think that's part of the process. I think that's part of what mortality is all about. So, yeah. yeah. And, and again, trust me when I tell you, I want these conversations to be friendly and I, I have no desire to, to get into uh, an argument with you, but I, I also want the listeners to just be clear of my position, which is I, I find that explanation not satisfactory. And, uh, and the reason is because when I look at the Stripling Warriors, the story narrative imposes like, yeah, we could argue, look, maybe maybe the 2,000 Stripling Warriors are up on a hill and they've got superior weaponry and they never put any of these people in danger. But the story imposes that there are enough of significant injuries being done to these men that they are fainting from blood loss. And And if I'm, again, not mistaken, I think the word is many of them. Um, and we could debate what many means. Maybe many means 10, maybe many means 15. But on some level, if we just look at the story with the data that we have and the understanding that we have, and again, I, under, I understand, and I should probably stop here and explain to the audience, there's a, a logical fallacy called an argument from silence. And, and I don't mean that it's never useful or never actually points to a truth only that it's an impossible mechanism to debate against. And what it means is that um, you say like, okay, you're arguing that this couldn't happen and I'm going to offer an alternative that is completely unprovable. It can't be substantiated, but it also can't be disproven. Um, and, it, and it would be in a sense like saying there's a flying spaghetti monster. And, and while you could argue like, yeah, the flying spaghetti monster absolutely exists, 
and I'm going to point back and say, no, he doesn't. There's no evidence to disprove him. And so it's a tough place. It's a tough hill to fight on. And so when you say the 2000 stripling warriors may have had some advanced technology, or we don't know their situation, or maybe it, maybe it has something going on that we just don't know about. That's one of those places that I can't really push back because it's unprovable. But what I what I do see in the story is the injuries, the blood loss, the quick return to battle. Uh, I don't see anybody dying from gangrene. I don't see. Uh, anybody dying from blood loss, which in the time period these guys are in, if if 10 people faint from blood loss, the science says that the majority of those guys should uh, probably die. Um, And to get them healed up and back into battle soon with that kind of significant injury, again, seems implausible. But I grant, we don't know, uh, there may be some unique circumstance, but it does, again, feel like it's an argument from silence. Well, except, once again, it, whether or not this is an accurate scientific rendition of what happened, if the Book of Mormon is fiction, then we're, we're debating whether or not you know that this is a good fictional account of something that happened. The fact that the Book of Mormon exists and the Book of Mormon itself is, in my mind, a miracle. That there's there there isn't a plausible secular explanation for the Book of Mormon's existence, at least to me. Uh, that gives me the 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 willingness to say, okay, well, once you accept that, then when you start looking at what the, the actual story is, then you're willing to be able to accept um, a great deal more and and give the writers of the Book of Mormon the benefit of the doubt and understand that their purpose was not to provide a, a um, you know, a documentary snapshot of what happened so much as to provide uh, a, a testimony of their faith that God's hand was in what happened. I, 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 I think that arguing over whether or not this is plausible is really kind of secondary to whether or not the Book of Mormon itself is plausible. And I know that you don't necessarily find the Book of Mormon plausible, and that's fine. But I, 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 I tend to think that once you start, once you've made that decision, then going through the stories of the Book of Mormon and saying, well, see, this isn't a plausible story, uh, that strikes me as kind of superfluous. Because if, if you're not willing to concede that the Book of Mormon itself is actually a historical document, then there's really no reason to hash over uh, whether or not the fiction has the ring of truth to it. Right. And so it, we're both coming at this from a different angle. So once, once Jim Bennett has decided, and I'm, I'm, once you've decided that the Book of Mormon is true, right. by whatever means, and I grant that you've had spiritual experiences that have given you that testimony, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you blindly arrived at that conclusion. But once you've arrived at that conclusion then knowing that all the other stories, as long as they are absolutely not provable as, as false, there has to be some explanation out there, and you simply make space that we don't have all the details, and if we did, somehow this would fit. On the other hand, I'm going to the other, the other way around, which is I started off where you were at. I, I had a spiritual experience, a deep in what I would call profound spiritual experience, praying about the Book of Mormon. Um, I would even call it visionary. 
And I went the first 20 years absolutely believing that book to be historical. And what happened to me was the reverse, which is as I went into these stories, I sensed over and over again, and not just there, but in our uh, this uh, dispensation's history uh, of the you know the church, uh, the way in which we've handled social issues, the way in which prophets uh, seem to behave in ways, uh, in terms of their revelation, in terms of their uh, the way they've lived out their lives, the way they present uh, conclusions or certainty on doctrines that turn out to be disavowed. As I looked at all the data, then I started to work backwards and say like, oh, this doesn't fit, that doesn't fit, this doesn't fit. And at the end of the day, the last thing that came down for me was the Book of Mormon. I held on to it as long as I could, and I felt like all the data after it forced me to go back and to revise my paradigm on what that book was. Does that make sense? Uh, it may, well, it does to some degree, but so, so, so how do you now interpret those visionary experiences? I mean, did that negate, did, were those not authentic experiences for you? Uh, it's for me, it's not black and white. So here's what I would say. Uh, and I want to get into this specific debate later on down the road when we talk about specifically prophets and then also spiritual experiences as a means of testimony. What I came to was the recognition that all religious systems have members of that religious system who have spiritual experiences. Those spiritual experiences are profound across all those religious systems. And those spiritual experiences tend to bind those individuals to their religious system. In other words, a Jehovah's Witness has deep, profound spiritual experiences that tie him to a testimony of the Jehovah's Witness as the true church. And those kinds of things happen in Methodism, they happen in Scientology, they happen in Heaven's Gate, they happen in the Baptist Church, they happen in Catholicism. I worked, uh, I lived in Ohio for the first uh, 34 years of my life, 35 years of my life, and I worked at a company where I was the only Mormon and almost everyone else was Catholic, and there was one Lutheran. And to hear the Lutheran tell her spiritual experiences, to hear the Catholics tell their spiritual experiences, it was very striking to me that uh, they had profound, deep experiences as well. And so I don't deny that the experience was there. I just no longer place weight on it as being unique to Mormonism and proving the validity of something within Mormonism any more than their spiritual experiences prove the validity of their religious system. Well, and, and we, we, there's a section of the CES letter that gets into this very specifically, where Jeremy Runnels starts talking about how he felt good during The Lion King and wonders now if that means that we're supposed to believe that that was God testifying that The Lion King was historical. Uh, which which was one of the most frustrating parts of the CES letter for me because because when people start talking about spiritual experiences as sort of this kind of binary communication that a nice warm feeling means something is historical and a non nice warm feeling does not uh, it, it it says to me that the church has failed the the, the church to some degree has let people down. Uh, if, if that, if, if you can grow up in the church and have that kind of an understanding of the spirit, then I don't think we, we're doing a very good job of teaching people what the spirit is and how the spirit works. 
And when you start talking about, okay, well, Jehovah's Witnesses have spiritual experiences and Methodists have spiritual experiences, uh, that's a section in the CES letter that we may want to postpone this discussion until we get to that point. But the reality is that uh, in my experience, in conversations with people outside of the church, um, you're not going to find a Jehovah's Witness that is going to testify of their experience in that same kind of term. I, when, when you, in my conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses, they rely on a very legalistic interpretation of Scripture to prove, hey, we're the ones who understand the Bible better. And they, you don't reach a point where you do with Mormon missionaries where they start just saying, well, I have a testimony. The Lord has told me this book is true. A Jehovah's Witness will instead come back and say, well, I have all of these scriptures that prove that our interpretation of the Bible is the correct one. And when you go through the, the kind of testimonies that you see in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are not necessarily how other people approach spiritual experiences. I'm not denying they have spiritual experiences, but I don't think they interpret them in the same way that a Latter-day Saint would interpret a testimony of the Book of Mormon. Uh, you know, in, in my reading of the Book of Mormon, the reason why I think the church survives, and the church survives all of the kinds of things that you've described, I mean, there are failures of leaders, there are failures of members, uh, there are all kinds of things that happen when people with agency do things that are not in accord with the will of the Lord, and that can happen at any level with any human being that has ever lived. Uh, when that happens, uh, people, I think, turn back to the spiritual experiences they've had, and I turn back to the spiritual experiences that I've had with the Book of Mormon where I say, look, the Lord's hand is in this. The Lord is still here. The Lord is still in this church. And the fact that the members of the church are imperfect and do things that uh, that I don't approve of or I wish they didn't do or any of that kind of thing, that doesn't, for me, erode the undeniable spiritual connection, the access point that the Book of Mormon is to the divine. Uh, that, that's what I keep coming back to. That's where my testimony is rooted. And I find that I can look at the church and say, yeah, the leaders of the church are not perfect. There are all kinds of things that I would do differently if I were in charge. You know, I you know, would love to run for president of the church. I'll start putting up campaign billboards in cultural halls all over the, all over the world. Uh, but uh, I am not president of the church, and I can have the kind of patience that I need to have with imperfect leaders because I have that anchor that comes with the Book of Mormon. And, and, and I, I don't think that requires me to say, okay, well, the spiritual experiences of a Jehovah's Witness or of a Methodist are somehow invalid. But I don't see these spiritual experiences as being um, interpreted the same way. I, I don't think you're going to bump into a Jehovah's Witness at your doorstep who will testify that they have had the spirit witness to them of the authority of the watchtower. I, I, I just don't think that's the way they're thinking about it. I think that's the way a Mormon looks at it and go, well, bear me your testimony. And I think if you were to, to ask a Jehovah's Witness to do that, they'd kind of stare at you and not be quite sure what you mean. 
am is, is that yeah no, no, no that makes sense and and I do I want to refrain from this part until we get to it I simply will say that I think in some ways we've been institutionally culturally trained to to lead out with those kinds of interpretations whereas the substance of the experience uh, are very similar across these systems all right so I want to leave that alone um, I want to get into a moment go back to the Book of Mormon I want to talk for a moment about 19th century material uh, and I want to talk again granting to you that there seems to be some ancient concepts as well the olive uh, tree culture for instance that's in Jacob chapter 5 right uh chiistic structures uh, I'm a little more prone in 2019 to say like yeah we can find those in modern places as well but I do grant that for instance Alma 36 does on the surface seem to be a highly complex chiastic structure um recognizing that there are other kinds of those things I'm also drawn to on on the critical side Richard Bushman, for instance, I'll read this quote. Uh, Richard Bushman says, I think right now the Book of Mormon is a puzzle for us. Even for people who believe in it, it's every detail, it's a puzzle. To begin with, we've got the puzzle of translation. Translating a book without the plates even in sight, wrapped up in a cloth on the table, it's not something that comes right off the pages. That is the characters on the plates. We don't Sorry, so we don't know how that works. And then there's the fact that there's phrasing everywhere, long phrases, that if you Google them, you find them in 19th century writings. The theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology, and it reads like a 19th century understanding of the Hebrew Bible, as an Old Testament, that is. It has Christ in it, the way Protestants saw Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. Um I want to start here and, and simply throw out the idea that I agree with Richard Bushman. Uh, I, I want to hear, once I conclude here, what your thoughts are on that quote. I agree with Richard Bushman. There is more 19th century material in the Book of Mormon than we yet have explained. I hear the faithful perspective that look, like for instance, uh, Blake Osler, um, and in his theories that, look, there's some things that are ancient, there's some parts of the story that Joseph is inserting from his own culture, stories from his own life, uh, that it's a mix of the two. Um, that feels like a, a backstep. It feels like we want to backstep to a place that, again, uh, these, these aren't the claims we used to make. These are the claims we make now because the evidence gets stronger and stronger that there's significant 19th century material. My worry is if we take out all the 19th century material, that perhaps we're not left with a whole lot uh, left in the book. And that becomes problematic for me. When I look at all the other evidence, um, and I want to get to a piece of that in a moment after you respond, but when I look at the other evidence of other 19th century pieces or things contemporary to Joseph in his other translation productions, I feel like I'm being pushed to begin to see Joseph's work as sacred fiction. Um, and and I want to get your thoughts on the Bushman quote, and I also want to get your thoughts on how you reconcile 
the significant amount of what Bushman says is 19th century material uh, in that book. Well, I think in order to be able to make sense of that, you have to define what 19th century material is. Because as a translator, Joseph lived in the 19th century, and therefore the entire Book of Mormon could be determined 19th century material in that it is how someone in the 19th century would translate ancient material. I mean, this goes back into the CES letter where Jeremy Runnels gets upset because italicized words in the King James Bible are, and, and he says, those are words that the, the translators inserted uh, because those words weren't in Hebrew. And so you get the sense that Jeremy Runnels and I think a number of members of the church believe that translation works where you just take one word and then you take the English word and replace it. And you have a one-to-one -one translation like that. And that's not how translation works in any context. If it were, then all you would have to do is take the digital text of, of an ancient text, slap it into Google Translate, and you'd have the perfect translation. But every time you try to do that, you get stilted, weird gobbledygook. And I do that in my reply. I take that and I keep translating it into different languages until it's completely unintelligible. Uh, because translation requires effort on behalf of the translator to clothe concepts from another language in a new language. And so this is why Joseph Fielding McConkie, incidentally, uh, discounted the whole rock and the hat, because the rock and the hat tends to uh, suggest that all Joseph did was read stuff off a stone and that there was no effort required. And the one contemporaneous document we have about the translation process in Doctrine and Covenants section 8. Joseph talks about how important it is to study it out in his mind, that there was intellectual effort on Joseph's part to be able to clothe these ancient concepts in language. So I, you know, I don't understand how that works with the rock and the hat or, or you know, we don't really know anything about the translation process. But I am fully convinced that the Book of Mormon is written in Joseph Smith's language, that it was Joseph Smith's responsibility to create language for these ancient concepts. So when you start talking about 19th century material, uh, I don't think we're talking about 19th century stories. That is, that there's an ancient story on the plates and then Joseph decides to add Samuel the Lamanite because he thinks that would be a fun story. And so there's a 19th century story next to it. I think what we're talking about is a 19th century translator using idioms and language that is familiar to people in the 19th century to describe ancient concepts. I mean, every translation we have of the Bible reflects the era in which it was translated, right? The King James Version of the Bible uh, uses language that would have been commonplace in the 1600s, but which now sounds stilted and archaic today. And so you, now you have new translations of the Bible that use modern language, but the concepts are still the same. And that's how I would interpret any kind of 19th century material quote unquote, I just say that it, it's using language that a 19th century translator would use. And I think that demonstrates, I think it, it, well, although it's very interesting because, you know, you have 
uh, Royal Skousen's critical text project of the Book of Mormon, who insists that the Book of Mormon is actually written in 13th century language, which is not an idiom that Joseph Smith himself would have known about. And uh, so I kind of find that fascinating. I have no idea how that would work. But uh, I, I don't see 19th century material, quote unquote, as as any kind of obstacle to this being an ancient document translated by a 19th century translator. Yeah, and, and the, the trouble probably having this conversation is in some ways this is probably above both of our pay grades. Um, but my understanding, my pushback would be that as I've read uh, various people who have tried to go in and tackle what it is that exactly shows up, is the idea that some of the sermons, maybe even a chunk of the sermons, significant, the theology of those sermons, the articulation of those sermons. So it's not just putting it into 19th century rhetoric. It's that the very theology of these Book of Mormon prophets is the theology and sermons of the uh of Joseph's milieu, the the ministers who were going from town to town and preaching, these are these are the ideas and concepts that these men got up on a soapbox and preached, and those same ideas and concepts seem to find their way into the Book of Mormon as its theology, and so it feels. Uh, and again, I, I I just I can't say it enough. Like. It, there's no way that you and I are going to get into the specifics because I I would need probably 20 hours of research to pull all of those out, and then you'd need 20 hours to combat that. But I simply want to make the statement that for the critic, what they're reading, what they're hearing, what is what seems to be the direction we're moving in is a recognition that the Book of Mormon contains concepts that are not just translation not, not just pointed to as um, a, a consequence of translation, but also seems to be the very things that are happening in Joseph's milieu making their way into the Book of Mormon. Does that make sense? Well, it does. Uh, you ha- I, I think one of, the, one of the interesting criticisms of the Book of Mormon is that it is too Christ-centered, right? Because th- you have people talking about Jesus Christ, uh, Specifically, before he's, yeah, before he's there, right? Before he's there, and you certainly don't have any of that in the Old Testament. And Mormon theology would have you believe that that um, that the dif- different dispensations of the gospel have been such that periods of apostasy have eliminated uh, a lot of the kinds of knowledge that we have, and and once the uh, the Israelites rejected the fullness of the gospel and then went under the law of Moses that you lost a lot of that a lot of that stuff and so so there's a there's kind of a worldview or a perception of that that would that would fly in the face I think of traditional bible scholars and and I think we have to recognize that and in order to be able to accept the book of mormon you have to accept that essentially Christ himself appears by name beginning with king benjamin where he starts talking about an angel appeared to him and told him specific things about Christ. And from that point onward, uh, Christ becomes a center, uh, central figure in the Book of Mormon. But prior to that, you know, when Lehi first has his vision, uh, 
it's clear that he sees Jesus, but he doesn't name Jesus by name. And he has what's, what's a very consistent Old Testament style experience. And so you have to accept that all of a sudden an angel appears and that these people had an experience, uh, and, and had knowledge that wasn't necessarily had in the old world. And that requires obviously a leap of faith. But, but I, I think the idea that, okay, well, these are 19th century sermons that have worked their way into this. And this is 19th century th- theology. I, I think you would have to give me more specifics than that, because I, I think that that's, that that's a charge that is made um, very similarly to kind of the charge that is made with regard to uh, different Isaiahs who's, who've written Isaiah. When people start talking about how the Book of Mormon can't be true because it quotes Deutero-Isaiah, and now we're getting deep into the weeds here. But the evidence for Deutero-Isaiah is a mention of a Babylonian king, and that's essentially it. And and if you can find some other reason why the mention of the Babylonian king could be in there, all of a sudden the idea that this had to have been written by two different people goes away. And, and so I, I think that, that uh, Latter-day Saint theology is, I think, markedly different uh, from not just – you know, Old Testament theology, but from 19th century Christian theology as well. So I, I think we, we'd probably have to do that research for me to be able to say, oh, well, I, I you know, I, I, I would have to concede, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. This is this is clearly a 19th century sermon, because I, I just don't I don't see that without having the specifics pointed out to me. Yeah, and, and that's why I grant it. It's one of those uh, issues that maybe we're we're talking from the twenty thousand foot view, but it really takes getting down into the details. Um, one way to demonstrate this, though, that I can talk about is in Joseph's other translation productions. So, um, let me do it kind of like we did in episode one. Let me tell you a little bit, kind of in a story format, what I learned. Um, the Book of Mormon I learned was an ancient text of Nephites and Lamanites that Joseph translated from the plates. And again, we have multiple accounts from witnesses. And I get the witnesses aren't directly involved. They're not the ones translating. They're not the ones doing the dictation. They're the ones writing it down or watching it from a little more of a distance in, say, David Whitmer's case. Uh, But what they reported was that Joseph would look at words on the plates and then he'd have a, you know, the word would be seen either through the Nephite spectacles or through the seer stone in the hat. And then he would dictate that word and then there would be a correction of spelling if need be. And until he got it right, and then once it got right, then that word would disappear and the next one would come up. So there's this idea of a very tight translation being spoken of by several of the witnesses in multiple statements of theirs. I also recognize that there's theological room for a loose translation as well. And maybe even a combination of the two, which I think is necessary to to have hold the faithful perspective of the Book of Mormon. I think you need both. Setting that aside, uh, the Book of Abraham, which we'll get into, uh, has its own issues where Joseph seems to be claiming one thing, and what we now know seems to point that what Joseph thought it was, the writings of Abraham written by his own hand, 
based on the documents we have, and that's going to be the substance of our argument later. So I, again, we'll have to set that one off to the side for a moment. But from the critic, the critical perspective, the book of Abraham is not what Joseph alleged it was in terms of where he was getting those stories from. Now we get into the book of Moses. In the book of Moses, I believe it's chapter 4 and chapter 5, and this I can point you to the research uh, when we get done with this episode, and if you want to come back and visit this specific issue later, I'm happy to. But the book of Moses seems to borrow heavily from uh, Luke and Matthew, uh, chapter 4, and I think chapter 3 of Luke and chapter 5 of Matthew. And the phraseology and the sentence structure and the things that it's discussing seem to very strongly come out of those documents to the point where some BYU researchers and others um, acknowledge that there seems to be a heavy influence uh, on the book of Moses from the New Testament, which again comes after and it takes a lot of allowances to allow both to be what they're supposed to be and not have the one that was written first to find ways for it to still have deep influence on this text that's written after without the translator or the author looking back at those sources. Does that make sense? Well, what is it supposed to be? He says that this is not what it's supposed to be. I mean, when you talk about a translation, the idea that a translator is going to use um, language that has been already used in previous translations of similar material, uh, I don't see what, what's wrong with that. I don't see that there's anything wrong with that or acknowledging that. Uh, you know, the, the fact that Joseph is dealing with, with uh, concepts that he's familiar with in the Bible, that he would use biblical language to do that, Whenever you get into any of these kinds of discussions about translation, I, I, I think there are so many assumptions that go unquestioned. Uh, and there seems to be this assumption that Joseph, for, for a translation of, for jo, any of Joseph's translations to be valid, it had to be something that came to him completely out of the ether uh, with magical language in ways that he did not. I mean, the, the idea that, okay, he's dealing with an ancient text that is similar to a text in the New Testament or that is imparting similar ideas. And so he chooses, whether consciously or unconsciously, to use that same language. The idea that that's somehow disqualifying of the integrity of the translation doesn't make any sense to me at all. I, I, I don't see any problem with that. I don't see why it's an issue. Uh, I. It, Hugh Nibley talked about the fact that uh, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, he quotes the version of the Old Testament that was consistent with what Mary would have known, uh, rather than sort of make up a new translation or any kind of thing like that. And, and I don't know why we would expect anything otherwise. So, so when I look at these and I look at these translation issues, uh, I think it's very clear that Joseph Smith was not a bystander in the translation. He wasn't sort of a radio receiver who just opened up his brain and God poured through the translation independent of anything Joseph did. 
I think that uh, that D- DNC eight makes it clear he had to study things out in his mind. That that I don't know how it worked, but I do know that Joseph was an active intellectual participant in that, and so the idea that he would rely on things that he knew to be able to produce these translations strikes me as entirely consistent with his testimony of what happened. And I I don't find it troubling or frustrating at all. I I don't really even understand the assumption that it it should be otherwise. So to take it one step further, the, the issue that I see is this. So if a document is written, let's say a thousand years ago, And as somebody else writes a new document today, claiming that the document they're writing has a unique narrative, and that narrative is unconnected to the specific events that occurred in a a different narrative written a thousand years ago, what if my if the narrative being written today? Well, you just make very big assumptions there. I know, but but I but I don't. Okay, so in the book of Moses. When the narrative includes not only the sentence structure, but the, the story details of the events as they occurred in the New Testament, then what it appears and what seems to be the most rational, logical uh, conclusion for people who are looking at that data is that Joseph has taken narrative details out of the New Testament and then repurpose them for a story that he's writing in the moment, but which is supposed to have occurred before the previous narrative was written. It, it starts to point to somebody who brilliantly, by the way, takes a story that's already been told, changes a little bit of that story to make it a little more difficult to recognize, but then once you know what you're looking for, it appears to be the very story that is not his character, but, but uh, proposed characters of a text written before he's uh, creating his narrative. Well, the book of Moses and the book of Abraham both include Old Testament stories, specifically the creation, and they do so in language that is almost identical to the King James language. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm pointing to. I, I, there isn't any place in the book of Moses that I'm familiar with where, you know, Luke shows up or any New Testament character shows up. I, I mean, do you know a specific as to what we're talking about with regard to the story that you're, you're claiming was essentially plagiarized? All right. So let me read this. Moses chapter one is dependent on the structure and content of Matthew chapter four in its construction of the temptation of Moses transforming Moses into a messianic figure in the same way that the author of Matthew transforms Jesus into a new Moses. Moses 1 agrees with Matthew 4 against the temptation of Jesus found in Luke 4. This is a critical observation for understanding not only Moses 1, but in formulating one's approach to interpreting it. The connections between Moses 1 and Matthew 4 can be summarized with the following. Uh, Moses 1.1 and Matthew 4, 8, up into an exceeding high mountain. Moses 1, 12, Matthew 4, 9, 15, 9, Mark 7, 7, Luke 4, 7. Satan says, worship me. Moses 1, 15, Matthew 4, 9, and Luke 4, 7. Worship God, for him only shalt thou serve. Um, 
Moses 1.18, Matthew 4.9, depart hence Satan. Uh, Moses 119, Matthew 4, 9, worship me. And I know, I understand the, the response is, why can't God and Moses interact in the same way God and Jesus or Satan and Moses and Satan and Jesus work? The trouble is that the New Testament, if you just follow along verse by verse, Moses in the book of Moses goes into that exact same narrative structure. It seems, again, the most, uh, and, maybe, and maybe I'm wrong in phrasing it that way, it seems rational to me, it seemed logical to me, that when I lay these two texts side by side, it appears that the, tra- the, the author of, of the book of Moses is essentially using the exact same narrative and the way that narrative is told from uh, the New Testament. And that connection feels out of place when the book of Moses should have been written thousands of years before the New Testament was written. Does that make sense? Well, it does. Uh, there are a whole lot of assumptions there, though, that I think are going unchallenged. Uh, first of all, um, well, let me let me back up and, and, and give kind of a framework for how I interpret that. And then let me dive in and challenge some of those assumptions. Uh, if you look, one of the things that that is remarkable about Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, anywhere else, is that uh, is that we're supposed to look for symbolism, that we're supposed to look for patterns. That when Christ came, he he talked about the idea that uh, the the what what the the ancients were doing in the Old Testament were all types and symbols of what was to come. That when the um, when the Israelites put the the blood of the firstborn lamb over their door during Passover, that that's a type of Christ. That's a symbol of Christ. That Christ is the firstborn lamb who will die for the sins of the world. And so you look for those kinds of symbols. You interpret the Old Testament through a New Testament lens, etc. And of course, um, the Jews will tell you that that's not an appropriate thing to do and that Christians are reading Christianity into the Old Testament where it isn't really there. But you, you go back and forth and you look at Scripture and you see that God continually, you know, interacts with his children in ways that are similar and in ways that are repeated. So the idea that Moses is tempted and Jesus is tempted. And you look at that and say, well, he's ripping this off. Joseph Smith is just ripping off Matthew. Well, then you say, okay, does that mean that every New Testament writer that talks about uh, things that were in the Old Testament is just ripping off the Old Testament? Or is it possible that God is using different symbols or different experiences uh, or, or similar symbols and similar experiences in different times? Uh, you because the, the parallels that you're talking about, they're, they're not sort of uh, the kind of plagiarism that you'd expect. He's not lifting the entire story. He's telling two different stories of temptation that have similarities. And a believer looks at that and says, well, of course, this is the way Satan tempts people. This is the way Satan tempted Christ. This is the way Satan tempted Moses. And I can learn from this by likening the scriptures to me and say, this is kind of the way Satan tempts me. 
you know, I, we're, I think we're supposed to read about these temptations and liken them to ourselves. So, yes, it is. You, you can look at that and say, aha, well, I have an explanation for this. Joseph is just ripping off the New Testament. But I don't think that that is an inescapable, irreducible conclusion. I think if you're a believer, you look at that and say, this is the way Satan works. This is the way God uh, allows Satan to tempt us. And we can draw lessons from that in ways that we say the way human nature and the divine nature is consistent over time. It's consistent through the Old Testament. It's consistent through the New Testament. And so that's how I would I would draw that out. I, but I, I, I can certainly see somebody interpreting that differently. But it, as with almost all of these things, it, it just depends on what conclusion you want to draw. And I don't think that the, the, the non-believer conclusion is inherently more reasonable than the believer conclusion. And so to then add in the last, so we talked about the Book of Mormon, we've talked about briefly the Book of Abraham, which we'll go into in detail in a moment, the Book of Moses, then we're left with the inspired translation of the Bible. And the story I was told was that the Bible had been had many pieces lost, it had been corrupted by various translations along the way. That was the Mormonism of the 1990s uh, that I grew up in. Be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Right, and that much of the Bible had been, pieces, important pieces had been lost, mistranslated, corrupted, and that the inspired translation of the Bible was a restoration right. of uh, a, something closer to its ancient... Um, the ancient ground that it a whole, that it held originally, correct? Right. And now today, you know, we point at this idea like, hey, we there's there's a critical point of view that Joseph is plagiarizing from other sources, and then there's the faithful view that God is just communicating similar concepts to uh, both prophets. And what I run into now with the inspired translation of the Bible is the research that's come out in the last year. The Thomas Wayment, a BYU professor, along with a BYU student Haley Lamont, they had just released about a year ago their research that it is demonstrable that Joseph is heavily borrowing, and they call it direct borrowing, which is another word for plagiarism. It's a softer word, but direct borrowing from Adam Clark's commentary. So Joseph puts out the inspired translation of the Bible. We institutionally, and I would have to go back and see what Joseph and those around him are claiming it to be, but at least Mormonism institutionally in the last 50 years has uh, proposed that the inspired translation of the Bible was a restoration of that Bible from a more ancient version, and it fixes some of those corruptions, it fixes some of those things that are lost. What is now understood is that much of the inspired translation of the Bible seems to be a plagiarism from Adam Clark's commentary. Uh, and, and that seems to be, again, not the entire production, but it seems to be long, significant portions of it. And so once I see the inspired translation of the Bible as absolutely no ifs, ands, or buts, taking chunks of Adam Clark's commentary and proposing it to be a restoration of lost things. 
And then I look at the, again, going back to the book of Moses, go back to the book of Abraham, go back to the book of Mormon, and it feels like I'm just seeing more of the same. Um, it, it causes me to pause and say, like, if I look at these collectively, I'm, I'm wondering now if something that's going on is much different than what the church wanted me to think was going on 25 years ago. Uh, when I first discovered Mormonism. I want to get your thoughts on the inspired translation of the Bible, and then after that, feel free to comment on all of this collectively. Well, so I want to push back a little bit, because when you talk about the big chunks of the inspired translation of the Bible, you're talking essentially about the book of Moses. So Joseph never claimed to have ancient documents in his possession. Essentially, he claimed that he was reading the Bible and, and his translation, and the, the word translation, Joseph used it in a number of different contexts, some of which uh, are consistent with how it's used in the 21st century, but I'd say probably the majority of which are not. And in fact, we even use the word translation to talk about people that have been transformed from mortal to immortal. You know, that's a very Mormon use of that word, um, to, a translated being. Right. If you, if you start talking to somebody outside of the church about translated beings, they're going to look at you and say they have no idea what you're talking about. So the word translation has a much more elastic definition in Joseph's mind, I think, than it does to most 21st century observers. So he wasn't looking at ancient texts and giving a new translation of it. And everybody concedes that. But the book of the book of Moses includes the, the sections, the book of Moses and I think Joseph Smith Matthew are the two that are large sections of the Joseph Smith translation that have no ancient antecedent or, or existing text that we know of. And none of that comes from the Clark commentary on the Bible. The, the majority of the Joseph Smith translation are uh, word changes, a word here, a word there, you know, you go through Luke chapter 2, and the only change in Luke chapter 2 is that when Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem, instead of there was no room for them in the inn, the Joseph Smith translation says there was no room for them in the inns, and makes it plural. And really, those are kind of the level of translation, quote-unquote, or changes that Joseph Smith does. So you go through the Bible, so, so, so to, to hear you tell that story, uh, if somebody about the Clark commentary, if somebody were not familiar with either the Book of Moses or the Joseph Smith translation, they would assume that large chunks of the Clark commentary uh, have been lifted out of whole cloth and plopped into some kind of big uh, section of the Joseph Smith translation when there really isn't any room in the Joseph Smith translation for those kinds of large, large chunks of texts. I yeah, let, let me phrase it differently, because I, I want the listener to be clear, and I want to be fair to you and to what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is that there is enough of Adam Clark's commentary in the Joseph Smith translation to remove any question that Joseph is directly borrowing from Adam Clark's commentary and using it directly in the Joseph Smith translation uh, in ways that don't seem like he's saying like, look, Adam Clark here makes a great point about baptism and I prayed about it and I feel good. And so now I'm going to take that concept and I'm going to put it over here. Instead, it comes across in a way 
that feels like the Joseph Smith translation was imposed to me as one thing, when in reality, uh, it seems to borrow much more from a contemporary source than what it was imposed to me as having done. Does that make sense? Well, it does, but again, it's an assumption here. It's always the expectation. It sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, sounds like you expected that Joseph Smith, his ideas or, or, or whatever revelations he got for the Joseph Smith translation happened uh, magically, that he was reading the Bible and all of a sudden, magically, words appear in his brain from heaven that say, uh, add this word or add these words. I mean, it, it, is that your expectation of what the Joseph Smith translation was? Is that an accurate rendition? So I want to answer it more completely. So yes, that was an expectation, but that's not my argument here. Um, what I'm arguing here is that Joseph Smith is communicating with God, and in that process, Joseph is to be putting down into this work uh, ancient concepts that were lost along the way. And it feels like the text is being imposed to me as that. On the other hand, what Joseph is actually doing is going to a non-Mormon contemporary commentary on the Bible uh, from a scholar and taking that scholar's scholarship and placing it into the Joseph Smith translation. And then we claim that that scholarship is a restoration of uh, ancient theology, ancient ways that that text used to be worded. And I think it feels as if those two are incompatible enough that on some level a deception occurred. Okay, because from my perspective, I don't see anything incompatible about it. I, I really don't. I, I was taught in primary, for instance, that the reason we have the word of wisdom is because Emma was sick of scrubbing tobacco stains off of the floor of the School of the Prophets in the Newell K. Whitby store and said, can't you ask the Lord if this, is, this strikes me as awful, the tobacco is terrible. And so Joseph asks a question based on a need that exists that, that's already there. And that, to me, is the way revelation always works, that revelation does not come in a vacuum. And so I can see a circumstance where Joseph is reading is is reading the the Bible, and he's reading a Bible commentary, maybe several Bible commentaries, and saying, oh, well, this strikes me as a good idea, and taking that as a question to the Lord, and say, is Adam Clark on to something here? And getting a, a, getting a response, yeah, absolutely he is. And to, Joseph, throughout his life, he was trying to learn Hebrew, he was trying to learn uh, languages that would give him an ability to be able to be the kind of Bible scholar that uh, secular people expect a Bible scholar to be. And so the idea that that he's not allowed to use any of that, that he's not allowed, that, that, that the, the Joseph Smith translation is only valid if it happened in a vacuum and he wasn't asking questions based on things he read in any other commentaries. Uh, I, I don't understand that assumption. That assumption doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't, it doesn't strike me as saying, well, if Joseph Smith thought that Adam Clark was onto something, 
and ask the Lord if that were correct, and that ends up in the Joseph Smith translation, that invalidates the translation. That makes the translation deceptive because he's not acknowledging that the question was raised by this other commentary. Um, that, that, that honestly doesn't make any sense to me. I don't see anything dishonest about that. And, and I think that as we understand uh, the way Revelation works for Joseph, we get a better understanding of how it can work for us. Because Revelation for us, individual Revelation, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens when we read something that inspires us or troubles us or interests us, and that brings us to our knees, and we ask the Lord, is there something to this? And so, so to me, I think this is entirely consistent with the way I was expected or that I was taught to expect revelation to come. Yeah, and, and I, I grant that what you're saying feels fair if you're willing, and, and, and again, you can concede or not concede, it doesn't matter to me. Because um, I think, again, as we talked about in episode one, I think people are enjoying the debate between both perspectives, sure. and I, I don't necessarily need one side to grant the other one's right. I think just leaving both out there and letting people think about it is wonderful. Well, I am happy to grant, I don't mean to cut you off, but I'm happy to grant to you that your perception of this is, is a valid and reasonable perception. I mean, that's, that's the thing that when, whenever you get into anything. Sure. Both conclusions are reasonable. Both conclusions are reasonable. And, and the, the thing, the CES letter, I think dismantles the kind of McConkey Mormonism you talked about earlier. Uh, in the idea that uh, the CES letter insists that there is one irreducible way to interpret all of these events. And I think there are pe people in the church and out of the church that believe that. And I think that's entirely unhealthy. And I think that, uh, that believers need to be able to grant, hey, there is another way to look at this. There is a way to look at this to say, Joseph Smith, could very well have, have been deceptive here. And the people who are saying that they, they have a point and you have to accept the validity of their point of view, even if you don't agree with it. And I think the converse is also true is that Jer the Jeremy Runnels of the world need to recognize that, that there is more to, than one way to interpret this than the way that Jeremy Runnels has interpreted it. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. Uh, the only pushback I would gives, give is that it feels then that we have to, and by the way, I think McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith's Mormonism was, man, was that beautiful in a non-information age, right? <laughs> like, like the church thrived and its growth was dynamic in an age where we could say the answers to every question but nothing could be tested, right? Um, and that Mormonism, as you and I both discussed, that Mormonism is, it's, if it's not dead, it's, it's on life support. Um, and so now we're having to take a Mormonism and start to water down the certainty about all the things we speculated, but impose that speculation as absolute out there in the weeds. And one of those ties into this, which is what I wanted to get to, which is... Um, I agree that your perspective you just shared on Adam, Clark, Adam Clark's commentary is fair. If we're willing as Mormons to concede that Joseph's milieu may have had a lot more influence on the end production 
than we'd like to hold on to. And I'll give an example. Sidney Rigdon is a close associate of Joseph Smith, just as Joseph is taking what he perceives as good ideas from Adams Clark commentary. We also need to recognize it is possible, and I would guess even likely, that Sidney Rigdon and others in Joseph's relationships, those around him, those things would have had influence to the point where in Mormonism, we look at things and we say like, oh, God told Joseph that this was a doctrine that had been lost along the way and we need to practice it again. And so Joseph's restoring something. I think it's also just as likely that Joseph would have heard something by Sidney Rigdon and others and said like, wow, that's fascinating. That would be really interesting. And it feels interesting to add into and make part of Mormonism. And that causes us to have to pause every step along the way and say like, you know, maybe this isn't just God telling Joseph to do ABC, but rather Joseph found some of Sidney Rigdon's intellectual concepts fascinating enough to implement them into Mormonism and to be influenced beyond uh, beyond what God would say is, hey, this is the way we've done things in the in the Garden of Eden. Well, does that does that make sense? Well, not a lot of sense because you haven't given me anything specific as to what Sidney Rigdon. I mean, what is it that Joseph stole from Sidney Rigdon? Uh, there, well, there's other ideas. So I, I'd have to be specific about Sidney, but there's ideas of three kingdoms. That's in. Uh, the theology of others in Joseph's day. Well, that, but that's um, not in the theology of Sidney Rigdon. N- n- no, but when I'm being... When Sidney Rigdon yeah. comes up, usually he comes up in the context of the Spalding theory of the Book of Mormon, which is bunk. Uh, the idea that, that Sidney wrote the Book of Mormon and spirited, stole it from Solomon Spalding, added some fun sermons to it, secreted it to him, uh, you know, be- years before they claimed to have met, and then you know, faked being a convert years later. Uh, yeah, for me, though, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll point back to Sydney. Yeah, I'll point to Sydney specifically, which is Cindy comes out, Sydney Rigdon comes out of the Campbellite tradition. And in the tra- uh, Campbellite tradition, there is uh, some of these ideas around restoration, some of these ideas around church organization that have similarities inside Mormonism, including some of the offices, for instance. And, uh, it feels as if prior to Sidney Rigdon, Joseph and early Mormons saw Mormonism kind of in a certain light, and then Sidney Rigdon comes along and suddenly the structure takes on some of the ideas and concepts that have connection to the Campbellite tradition. Well, but if, if you're saying that the church wasn't a restorationist church until Sidney Rigdon came along, that's demonstrably untrue. Yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that uh, some of the titles, some of the theological concepts around restoration, um, that there's we, that if we're going to allow Joseph to take a modern uh, commentary and implement pieces and parts of it as the gospel, then I think we also need to make space that Joseph is taking concepts and ideas uh, out of other places in his milieu and implementing them into Mormonism, whereas we've told ourselves a story that God has given us all these things 
on some level, we at least need to acknowledge there may be some level of distortion being one level removed as Joseph takes other ideas out of his milieu and as God uh, is not giving a one-to-one translation on those things. Well, you keep talking about these things as if if if, if Sidney Rigdon gave Joseph the idea to call uh, high priests high priests or whatever. I'm not sure what the specifics are there. Uh, that 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 that's done something that's something separate from what God has done. I mean, I mean, I I I I keep I keep wanting to get back to the central assumption here that if Joseph is is getting any information from any source other than some magical stream of data that comes unprompted from God, that somehow that taints it, that somehow God's hand is not in it that somehow that is not a legitimate way to say that the restoration happened. Because I look and say, Joseph was pulling things from his milieu all the time, and Joseph was placed in that milieu in order to be able to do that, that that's what the restoration was. You know, we're taught, for instance, that that Joseph had to be born in the United States in a country with religious freedom in order for the restoration to be able to take place. Well, couldn't the restoration have taken place somewhere, you know, completely removed from that? Well, yeah, but that would have required a whole lot more of the kind of magical download of data from heaven that you're talking about. But the fact that all of mortality, the entire world, uh, uh, has God's fingerprints on it. And the fact that Joseph was being placed in circumstances and situations where he could say, oh, well, that's, that's remarkable. And God says, well, yeah, it's remarkable because that's something that uh, was also done anciently. And I've placed you in a circumstance to be able to discover that. Uh, that to me, that has always been my understanding of how God works. And, and so when, when, you, when you're telling this to me, and so I, I don't see any evidence of any kind of conspiracy when I see, okay, Joseph met Sidney Rigdon, and Sidney Rigdon was doing things in a way that really appealed to Joseph, and and Joseph st- started incorporating that into the church, and it turns out that this is consistent with how it was done anciently. I would just say, yeah, because that's that's the circumstance that Joseph was placed in by the Lord. And that all of this ground was laid by the Lord in order to be able to accomplish the restoration. So, so you know, I, I, as as I look at that, I, I, I don't I, I don't get shaken by any of that, and I and I recognize that there are lots of people that do, and so I I I don't want to deny the legitimacy of that, but I I I just want to point out that. To me, the, the answer is, yeah, so, yeah, of course, of course. It's not just, yeah, so, it's, yeah, of course. This is the way the Lord works. This is the way the Lord teaches me. Uh, the Lord has placed me in a certain milieu, and he's expected me to draw inspiration from things in my world and things from where I live. And uh, And I've had spiritual experiences based on uh, the world that I encounter, and I don't see why Joseph Smith is somehow supposed to have been different. That Joseph Smith is supposed to not have had any kind, draw any kind of inspiration from the world in which he lived. 
Yeah, and and I I grant that. I, I'm trying to point at an overarching concept, and, and maybe it's best. And again, this is I, I tried to stay away from this because it's a discussion in a later sit down with you. But the idea that in Mormonism, prophets can declare things or teach things as being true only to later we as an institution say like oh yeah that wasn't true we got that wrong and and the easiest one to point to which i didn't want to yet was um those of color for instance being less valiant in the premortal life right like prophets stated like look Brigham young taught it he it seems as though he's getting this from heavenly father it seems as though he's adamant that he knows by the spirit these things are true and now in 2019 we're having to go back and say like oh that's not a that's not a one to one god to prophet mechanism instead these men are fallible enough that they can give us things that we thought were true in the moment that we thought came from god that we felt good about we thought we felt confirmation from the holy spirit whatever that is that, that the prophet themselves thought they had some level of confirmation that we taught as absolutes only to recognize that uh, these leaders in their fallibility can be deeply influenced by the context of their culture. And when they think they're giving the mind and will of God, they're actually handing over prejudice and bigotry and false doctrine. And, and I simply wanted to make space in the conversation about these translation productions that we as Mormons tell ourselves these are all ancient text and that on some level it may be a little more complex and messy than that. Well, um, do we want to postpone the discussion about blacks and the priesthood until we get to that point? Yeah, I do. And, and I, I promise when we get to that point, the listener will have plenty of time to hear us go back and forth on that. Because, okay, because I, I don't want to dive into that. I do want to dive into... Uh, the idea of, of fallibility and infallibility. Uh, and that we'll get into later on as well. Uh, um, and if you feel like, hey, I just I don't want to grant that. Just because they're fallible on race and there's reasons about that and there's circumstances about that that make that a very different situation than, say, uh, the titles and organization of the church or Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, then I, I think it's satisfactory to say that and we can just move on. Well... Well, you're talking about two different things there, though. You're talking one. You're talking about error, granted, and one you're talking about influence. Uh, for instance, uh, if Joseph is using titles that were influenced by Sidney Rigdon, that's not necessarily error. But but the, the conflating the two and saying, well, if Joseph is drawing something from Sidney Rigdon, then it's not possible that that's coming from God and that that's reflective of anything ancient. And I would push back and say, no, if Joseph is drawing something from Sidney Rigdon, he's drawing something from something that God has placed there to, in order to influence Joseph. And that both things can be true at the same time, that something can be part of a modern influence and also reflect something that was true anciently. But also that it's feasible to make space that also some heirs got in. And I'll share one example, evangelical. Or evangelist, I'm sorry. So the idea of the title of evangelist, Mormonism, Joseph Smith, imposed that that was a modern word for the word patriarch. 
And it feels, again, we'd have to make an argument from silence, but that evangelist, as used by Joseph Smith and used by the New Testament, which Joseph Smith is adding this extra layer of interpretation, seems to be completely unrelated to the way the Old Testament uses the term patriarch and the and how we, in a modern sense, use this patriarch term for this guy who everybody comes to to get this blessing from. And then evangelist in the New Testament seems to have no connection to that kind of a role. And all I'm saying is that to make space that Joseph Smith thought he was restoring something, but that there's room for some of that to not be accurate, that Joseph also can make mistakes, and that we as Mormons need to make space that not everything is perfect in our theology or our, or our doctrine, even when Joseph Smith says that, uh, even when he seems to imply that he's got the mind and will of God on that issue. Well, again, those are two different things in that can Joseph have made mistakes? Yes, and he did. Uh, there's no question. You know, it's the old saying, it's become popular now, but the old saying that Catholics are told the Pope is infallible and they don't believe it, and Mormons are told the prophet is fallible and they don't believe it. And I think there's a, a whole lot of truth to that. Uh, it is impossible for agency and infallibility to coexist. That's I keep coming back to that concept. But Does that include doctrinal mistakes? Absolutely. It includes every possible mistake. It is not possible for a prophet to be incapable of making a mistake. It is not possible. Uh, unless Even things that the institution hangs on to for 100 years or more and thinks is truth. Uh, yes, and there's plenty of biblical precedent for that, too. I keep, well, I keep coming back to when, when I talk about this with people and they say, well, how could he have allowed a mistake to happen? How could he allow it to have endured for so long? You go back to the Old Testament, and you go back to when the Israelites demanded to have a king. And Samuel takes it to the Lord, and the Lord says, absolutely not. Here are all the terrible things that will happen if Israel wants a king. And Samuel goes back to the people, and they say, we want to be like other nations. We want a king. And eventually, the Lord himself helps anoint the king. And you look at that and say, well, how is that possible? And how it's possible is that the, uh, you, there's, there's a phrase in the Book of Mormon in Jacob chapter 4 where the Lord says, because they have desired it, um, uh, I have allowed it that they may stumble. Uh, the Lord will not interfere with our agency. He will not interfere with a prophet's agency. And I think when you look at some of the mistakes, and there are some egregious mistakes in the history of the church, you're looking at a desire by the, by the church and by the leaders of the church to do something to make them more like other nations. I think that's kind of one of the reasons we're getting into the blacks and the priesthood, but I think that's kind of where that came from. Paul Reeves written a very interesting book about that where he talks about a number of things that we'll talk about when we get to that in the point of this discussion. But but no, absolutely 100% a prophet is capable of making making mistakes on every subject. There is not a place a prophet can stand that will insulate him from it. You know, Jeremy Runnell says, well, Brigham Young taught the Adam-God theory at the veil of the temple, as if somehow the veil of the temple 
removes Brigham Young's agency to make a mistake. And it doesn't. And so that may make me a wild and dangerous uh, sort of heterodox member of the church. But at the same time, I think it, it, it places a, gr- a, a much greater responsibility on the individual members. That there is no point of doctrine where you can just coast on somebody else's testimony. There's no point of doctrine where you don't have to reach out to heaven yourself and receive that revelation personally in a way that you know something is true, not just because Russell M. Nelson told you, but because you have direct access to heaven and you have as much access to heaven as Russell M. Nelson does, and you have that confirmation of the Spirit, so you know of yourself. That's the Book of Mormon language. I know of myself that these things are true. And also, though, with the understanding that that prophet can feel like he also got an answer that that was true and be wrong, and that the institution collectively can feel good about a belief, think that they know from God that it's true and be wrong. That is correct. Which which then calls me to question my own answer about that belief. If I disagree, right? Like, like it gets messed. I don't. I don't mean for you. I'm not trying to open Pandora's box. No. Only that even my own spiritual witness is just as messy as the prophet I'm doubting his answer on, and the institution collectively and all the members with it that I'm doubting their answer on. Well, salvation is an individual experience, and so yes, you always need to be uh, not doubting necessarily, but challenging your own assumptions, your own beliefs, and you always need to be able to rely on your own personal relationship with God. Perfect. Um, And and I want to say, like, beautiful. What you said in the last five minutes was kind of what I was trying to kind of push us towards was to, because it sets up the conversation later on to say, like, oh, a prophet could be dead wrong about something he thinks he's dead right about. The church collectively could be dead wrong about something they all collectively thought they were right about. And that calls us to make space to have conversations around some of these messy aspects and to say, like, look, it appears like maybe on this issue we messed up. Um, so I just wanted to go there. And and I want to acknowledge, like, the listeners, as they're listening, they're hearing you and me, who, you know, you, neither one of us is a... Uh, trained biblical scholar in the New Testament. Neither one of us is a trained uh, scholar of biblical history. And so we're talking about these things. And and I struggle sometimes to get into the specifics because I'm I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. And to name the specifics on every single thing right. we talk about, I'm just not trained to do that. And and But I appreciate it. I appreciate the conversation. So I want to talk for a moment, and I'm hoping we can at least get through the Book of Mormon so that we can at least start off with the Book of Abraham next time. Um, the idea of witnesses, I think we can cover this pretty quickly. I'll tell you what I think, and you can agree or add extra commentary or disagree. The Book of Mormon witnesses... Uh, I was told a story that, hey, here's their testimony. This is what they saw and heard and did, and they never questioned it, and they never denied it, and there's that. And what I learned when I got into the data was that these 11 witnesses, the three witnesses, uh, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and then the eight witnesses uh, had multiple statements on the record. Some of these men died and they never said anything outside of their witness statement that they attested to. But other folks among those 11, John Whitmer, 
Martin Harris, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery speak on multiple occasions. And we say they never denied their testimony. And for the most part, I'll agree. We've got one or two quotes from, I think, Martin Harris, where he... Uh, in a second or third hand source, which again, I don't necessarily want to say like, oh, that's definitely credible. Like we could debate that. And I'm open to saying like, let's just set that aside and toss it out. But at the very least, we need to acknowledge that there are quotes out there from some of these men that point to this being more messy than we made it sound. And that at least on some level, they are contradicting themselves on the nature of their experience not necessarily their testimony that the Book of Mormon is a, a, a translation from God, but that whether they saw it or whether it was more visionary, whether the plates were under a cloth or in a box or whether they laid out on a, on a log, whether the eight witnesses saw it at one time or whether there were two groups of four in two different locations, all of those details get messy and I would simply want the listener to know that I, I wouldn't just trust their witness statement at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. I would challenge people to go read all the statements by these men and weigh whether you see those as consistent or not. And I think there's an argument to be made from both sides. And the critical argument is that there's enough contradiction to... Uh, question whether these men uh, had a level of consistency in their mind about what that experience looked like. Well, uh, I'm going to push back really hard on this one because I, I think to a large degree that is, that is not accurate. Um, and I think that the section on the witnesses, which is near the end of the CES letter, uh, but which, which goes with our discussion now, is is easily the most dishonest and disingenuous section of the CBS letter, because Jeremy Runnels finds a handful. He, he find, I, I counted them at one point. I think there are um, uh, eight different statements that are mostly second and third hand. Many of which made by people who didn't ever meet the witnesses. Some of which are taken from a debate that took place after all the witnesses were dead. That's the one where he keeps saying that Martin Harris claimed that uh, he had as much witness for a Shaker book, the Book of the Shakers, as he did for the Book of Mormon. That comes from a debate from two people who never met Martin Harris that was that was had after Martin Harris died, and Martin Harris lived to be something like ninety years old, so it had to take place a long time after. I mean, you look at that, and 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 not only that, but Jeremy takes these eight statements and cuts snippets of them. Out and he says, well, here's another statement, and here's another statement, and here's another statement. And he quotes one guy seven different times with seven different pieces from the same statement. And that, that strikes me as extraordinarily disingenuous because he's trying to create this illusion that there is more evidence that the, the, the witnesses were contradictory than there actually was. Richard Lloyd Anderson uh wrote a book where he talked about that there are 45 firsthand statements from the witnesses, all of which are consistent with each other and consistent over time that these witnesses, even after being deeply disaffected 
with Joseph Smith. And David Whitmer never came back to the church. David Whitmer was a fierce opponent of plural marriage. Uh, David Whitmer had major problems with Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith piled on these witnesses. I mean, one of the things that Jeremy talks about in the CES letter is, you know, Joseph Smith said all these terrible things about these witnesses. What should that tell us? And my response is, it should tell us that these witnesses had every uh, motivation and opportunity to expose Joseph as a fraud. Why didn't they? And there's no good answer to that question. Uh, so to, to find statements where the witnesses were saying, oh, we didn't really see something, or we only saw something with our spiritual eye, all of these, you don't find a single firsthand uh, statement where that's the case. And where people try to make those statements, uh, the witnesses, when they have the opportunity or find them, David Whitmer, for instance, uh, somebody, Jeremy quotes one statement to that effect, and David Whitmer, the next day, uh, took made a statement to the local newspaper where he completely disavowed the previous statement, insisted, no, I saw the plates, I saw the angel, uh, and, you know, he... he it's just very, very difficult to to make a credible argument that these witnesses didn't say what they were saying. And so Jeremy, to some degree, shifts from trying to say, okay, well, their their arguments were inconsistent to, well, Martin Harris was a flake and he was a weirdo and he he believed that he was talking to a deer that was really Jesus. And so we can't really believe what he was saying. And I'm saying, okay, well, those those statements that you're taking that from are largely unreliable or historically unreliable too. Those are second and third hand statements. But you're shifting the argument now. You're now trying to discredit him based on not not an inconsistency in his statement about the Book of Mormon, but you're just trying to discredit him as a, as a reliable witness because he's crazy in other aspects of his life. But the point is, it, the witnesses. Uh, I think it's very hard to get around the witnesses. I think it's very hard to make a case that these witnesses did not stay true to their testimony, were not consistent in saying what it is they saw, what their experience was. And I think efforts to do that are largely disingenuous. And I, I think non-Mormon historians would look at those evidence and look at the evidence being used to make that case and dismiss it and say, these are second, third-hand sources way after the fact. They're, they're not reliable. If you go to the first-hand sources, which vastly outnumber these second and third-hand sources, uh, these are consistent testimonies. And none of those 45 first-hand statements make their way into the CES letter. All of the things that he takes are just multiple reiterations of the same tired second, third-hand sources. So, so yeah, I'm, I, I'm pushing back fairly hard on that. Good, good. Um, and I guess my only caveat, and for the most part, I agree with what you're saying. I also find that when we have late sources that are removed, and I think this also works to Mormonism's disadvantage at places when we talk about maybe polygamy, for instance, where we have somebody speaking when they're 87 years old and, and so long after the event and they're hearing it second or third hand, um, I would simply say, like, I agree with you. We would, I would, I'm perfectly comfortable, as I said in the beginning, of taking that Martin Harris quote and just setting off to the side, uh, because I find that also to be a weak 
single uh, quote to run against the rest of what's being said collectively. And it's not a Martin Harris quote. Right, right. But we I mean, correct, it's, it's a quote about what he said right. second or third hand, but right, far removed. But quotes from Martin Harris and legions of them that say something different. And then we have a guy after Martin Harris is dead who's never met Martin Harris who says, you know, I'm pretty sure Martin Harris said this. And to give that equal weight with the legions of firsthand quotes we have, there is no reputable historian that would be willing to do that. Right. And and again, the issue for me would be we'd have to stop for an hour and pull up every one of these quotes and go through them and pick ones that make your case or pick ones that I want to point to. But it, it again, I'm going to say it feels because I have gone through these and I've done podcast episodes on the witnesses. And for the most part, I took the same perspective that you just explained, which is that generally these guys seem to be in large part in agreement, um, but I do find a few of the quotes, and again, we'd have to stop and find them, but I do find a few of the quotes where the nature of the physicality of their experience seems to be described different, uh, different enough that I at least would want to pause and say like, hmm, what's going on here? Um, but I agree with you that far and wide, the quotes we have from the three witnesses themselves uh, seem to be relatively consistent. Um, let's talk for a moment about anachronisms. Uh, I love, and I, and I agree with you on this, and I'll let you go first here because I think it, it sets up the conversation well. Uh, when the Book of Mormon first came out, we would make a, you know, the critics made a large list of all the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. And as time has gone on, uh, I'll let you describe this, but as time has gone on, that list has gotten smaller and smaller. That's correct. Uh, that's the case that my father makes in his book, uh, acknowledging that there are anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. But and I think I think I may have uh, outlined this in our last conversation, so I don't want to necessarily. Yeah, you did briefly, but I, I wanted you to at least reiterate it. Well, right. So he talked about his Howard Hughes experience, you know, the forged Howard Hughes autobiography, the forged wills, and that now when you look back at them, uh, they are clearly ridiculous. And and there are more anachronisms now than there were. And that's the case with every forgery in history, except if the Book of Mormon is a forgery, it's the first one that has fewer anachronisms 150 years after it was published, or 175 years after it was published, uh, than it did um, when it was first published. You know, the idea of writing on metal plates anciently and placing them in stone boxes, and the ideas of large cities among Native Americans and all of these kinds of things that we now accept and recognize a reality and how ridiculous they were in 1830 when the book was published. So, so there, there is no question that there are anachronisms in the Book of Mormon as, as it now exists. Uh, I think there are explanations for them that are plausible. And it's, it's very frustrating to see Jeremy Runnels, for instance, just beat up on Dan Peterson and call him Taper Dan over and over again because of the idea of loan shifting and the concept that words in the Book of Mormon describing something may be describing something else that uh, we would have a different word for in 21st century English. Uh, that's the way that uh, translation has worked all throughout history. You know, Orson Scott Card points out, for instance, that uh, the automobile um, – we call them cars because 
that was the word that was already in existence for railway cars. Cars existed prior to there being automobiles, but the word was shifted to the new thing, even though the new thing, even though an automobile is very different from a railway railway car. So I, so I think there's been a lot of tr- attempts to explain anachronisms using that kind of loan shifting. And I think, I think uh, how much validity you're willing to give that also depends on how much benefit of the doubt you're willing to give Joseph Smith. Uh, my, pers- my perspective on anachronisms is that if there are fewer of them now than there were in 1830, there will likely be fewer of them uh, 100 years from now than there are now, which would suggest to me that we don't have all of the information uh, and that uh, that would be a mark of authenticity, that there's the possibility. I, I look and I talk about this from the time I wrote my first reply to Jeremy in 2016 to the time I wrote this latest one near the end of last year, uh, all of the LIDAR data from Mesoamerica that shows much more complicated cities and roads and all this kind of thing than anybody ever thought was actually there. And the National Geographic scholars saying it's going to take us a 100 years to sort all this out and everything we knew about Mesoamerica is wrong. I mean, I look at that and say, okay, does this open the possibility that uh, – that what happened in the Book of Mormon could be reflected in these new discoveries? I think it does. But uh, so so that's where I am with anachronisms. And, and I, I recognize that people will say, well, even one anachronism is enough to disqualify the book. And I, I can understand how that perspective, uh, how people can have that perspective. But at the same time, I think that the Book of Mormon is just so incredibly remarkable and how it has defied the odds with regard to anachronisms in a way that no other uh, supposed or alleged forgery has ever been able to do. Yeah, and, and I want to grant that ground. Um, I, I think there's a couple things that need to be said about it, but overall, I agree with you. When we start off in 1830 by going through the Book of Mormon and looking at Joseph Smith's culture and making a list of all the things that don't fit based on what we knew about Native Americans and the geography of the area, um, it, it certainly, as time has gone on, has allowed us to remove uh, things off that list, some of them showing up prevalently uh, in some of these cultures, and some of them maybe a little weaker only because we find very scant evidence, but still uh, enough. So if we find a variation of a plant, if we find in a small amount, for instance, or if we find um, some toys, for instance, with wheels on them, it becomes at least feasible to say like, hey, they've got the idea of a wheel. Uh, but I want to at least acknowledge that for some of those things that we would check off the list, the evidence is going to have a varying amount of strength to it. Uh, horses, for instance, being one of those, right? Like at least on some level, like horses don't appear to be prevalent. And while we found a few skeletal remains, there's debate about what time period those come from. Uh, And the fact that we only find a few seems to point to something as well. So if the book mentions horses, for instance, I think the Book of Mormon mentions horses maybe like 14 times. 
And it seems as though that animal is a prominent animal in their culture. And if we're saying horses equals horses, because I don't think the argument that a horse is something else is false, but it also becomes an argument from silence. There's no way to prove or disprove that, right? Um, I also would want to add into this conversation that there are other kinds of anachronisms too. And here's one. When the Jaredites come over, and I, th- I don't know if this is true for the Nephites, but the Jaredites specifically, it talks about this. When the Jaredites come over on their barges, they bring uh, seeds of, of the plants that they would have had familiar to them in the old world. When they get to, uh, when they land on you know North America, South America, Central America, I don't want to get into that debate because I just don't care. But wherever they landed, the Book of Mormon tells us that they begin to till the land. So another kind of anachronism is the idea that when a people travel and when they bring things with them from their old world, those and they then say that they're tilling the land and their plants are flourishing, we should then expect to see the plants and maybe even the animals that they would have had from that old world. And those things seem to not show up and that's a different type of anachronism. It's it's not necessarily the Book of Mormon says these guys had horses. Instead, it's that we should find here in this new world those plants that they brought with them if those plants begin to flourish, and and we don't see that presence. And so I, I'm not I'm not. This is at a hill I want to die on. I simply want to make uh, it clear to the listener that there are still anachronisms that are problematic for the Book of Mormon. At the same time, I agree with you that things that were thought to be problematic in the past have been checked off the list to varying degrees, and some of them very strongly, and I'm hoping you would at least grant that both of those are are true. I would. I I absolutely would grant that both of those are true. The Jaredite example is interesting, though, because uh, if you want to go back to horses, uh, we know that there were horses in the ancient Americas. But they died out before Lehi got there. Uh, but did they die out before the Jaredites got there thousands of years earlier? Uh, uh, you know, we don't have a specific date as when the Jaredites arrived, but we, we were told that they were there for thousands of years before Lehi showed up. So the idea that horses could have died out, uh, I think, suggests also that I, I, I just think you run into all kinds of problems when you try to. Uh, take from the the data we have in the Book of Mormon any kind of scientific information about what kind of plants these actually were, that a translator would identify a seed as something similar enough to something that they understood in the 19th century that would negate, essentially, using the reference of the Book of Mormon as scientific data to prove that that's the kind of seed that the Jaredites were planting. I just don't think we have enough data, enough information to be able to draw any kind of solid conclusions in that regard. Yeah, and I think there is some science here, some fields of science that would help us understand that. But I also agree with you that another complexity is the fact that we start at a geographic location, say, 4,000 years ago, whatever it is. And then we fast forward 4,000 years, and now we're looking in the modern day 
in that location, which also would have changed from what it looked like 4,000 years ago, and also this new geographic location, and that adds complexities to the conversation. And we don't even know which geographic location we're looking at specifically, particularly with Jericho. I mean, we, we, I, I think Book of Mormon scholars have essentially I, – I, I'm not a heartlander. Uh, I'm a I'm – I mean, there's, there's kind of a schism between people in the church at this point. Uh, you've got this heartlander movement that I don't understand at all. But uh, the scholars that I respect and agree with are the ones who place the Book of Mormon in Mesoamerica. And so – but we don't know if the Jaredites were there. Or if they were south of the, we have no idea. Right. So it, it adds extra layers of how do we even begin to to look at this data objectively? Um, let's. Uh, I've got about twenty minutes. Let's start to talk about the Book of Abraham, and then we can dive deep into this one uh, when we sit down again. But again, I'll tell you the story. I think most of this you'll agree with. I think where we're going to disagree is the evidence for and against missing documents and the evidence for and against the catalyst theory. But the story I grew up with in Mormonism, uh, and based on Joseph Smith's own quotes, was there was this papyri that comes through Kirtland, I think it's 1834-ish, 1835-ish. Michael Chandler brings these mummies and papyri, the church buys some. uh, Joseph Smith uh, claims that some of this papyri is the book of Abraham, and that some of this papyri is the book of Joseph. Uh, he translates the book of Abraham. The papyri is lost for a long time, thought to have burned out in the uh, Great Chicago Fire, uh, shows back up uh, at, the, at the Met Museum, um, pieces of it anyway. It is then sold or donated to the church, we look at these documents that we have, which may be all of it, minus a few small pieces, or as some apologists argue, there may be a lot of it still missing. But what we have certainly is not the writings of Abraham and not written by his own hand by Egyptologist standards. And as one who dives into this issue, for those who find it problematic, uh, the church has offered a missing scroll theory. And I don't want to say the church, but its apologists have offered a missing scroll theory, which is that we still have documents missing and that the book of Abraham may be on those documents or that Joseph may have thought he was translating this because just like the book of Mormon, Joseph may not be looking directly at this papyri. Instead, he may be using a seer stone or may just be uh, in kind of meditative prayer in getting the Book of Abraham text from God without any correlation to the text itself on the papyri, uh, and that we would call this the catalyst theory, that the papyri is a catalyst prompting him to ask questions and to seek inspiration. He's given the Book of Abraham text through inspiration, and while he thought it was directly connected to the text, it wasn't. Uh, The critic finds a problem with both the catalyst theory and the missing scroll theory, which hinges on the idea that, one, Joseph translates the, gives interpretations for the facsimiles. Um, That's one piece of evidence. Another piece of evidence is the Kirtland uh, Egyptian papers, the Egyptian alphabet and grammar specifically, where Joseph 
or his scribes seem to be writing down the uh, hieroglyphic character and then assigning a section of text and that those characters seem to fall in order immediately following facsimile one on the papyri. And uh, that lends some uh, credibility to if we're to take it at face value and say this is what it looks like is going on, that the uh, text of the book of Abraham comes immediately following facsimile one, and then the final piece of evidence is Abraham chapter one, verses 12 through 14, where Abraham himself in the book of Abraham seems to be speaking to the reader or the translator or both and telling them that this text of the book of Abraham uh, is the text that immediately follows facsimile one. Um, And so those three pieces of evidence cause the critic to go like, ah, Abraham 1, 12 through 14 makes the catalyst theory not work. It also prohibits a missing scroll from working, as well as to a lesser degree, the uh, Egyptian alphabet and grammar, uh, as along with the translation or interpretation of the facsimiles. And so the critic then says, like, it, this isn't what it claims to be. This is a problem. And I want to get your, I guess, two cents kind of starting off this conversation. I'll probably have to stop you at some point, and then we'll pick up next time. Sure. Well, um I want to push back on a few things there. One, uh, the idea that uh, the, the, what we have, the Joseph Smith papyri that we have, are essentially the, the, the sum total or even the majority of the papyri and the texts that Joseph had in his possession. I think that is demonstrably incorrect based on the witnesses that talk about the long scroll and a number of other things and describe small fragments that were placed under glass, which is what survived the Chicago fire and ended up in the Met. Uh, so I, uh, most historians would say that this is probably about 10% of the material that Joseph had in his possession. I mean, we, could, we, we don't know, we can haggle, but, but the idea that, that it's essentially, um, that it's essentially accepted that this is the source material for the book of Abraham I, that's- All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in for just a moment here because I think we'll probably just have to talk about this issue. Um, so one is I would ask you which scholars, because I think in terms of the, not just like not just like Dan Peterson reiterating somebody else, but it feels like the majority of this is coming from John Gee and Carrie Molstein. And um, the, the, the idea of a long scroll, that there's a long scroll that stretched across the mansion house in Nauvoo, that quote comes from Hugh Nibley, who says it came from Joseph Fielding Smith, and then we don't have any original source for it. Does that make sense? I have to go back and look at that. Yeah, I, I'm almost certain oh. that the it's Hugh Nibley who says it, and he says it came from Joseph Fielding Smith, but we don't have any source beyond Hugh Nibley for where that comes from. Um, and we have two other quotes that talk about the scroll being larger than whatever that person's expectation was of a document in their day. But it's very vague and ambiguous, and we don't have anything else that points to the scroll being really long. John Gee has offered some ideas on the measurement of that scroll rolled up, but I'm also aware that there are scholars who deeply disagree 
with that measurement, and he seems to be one of the only people who's making the argument uh, based on a measurement uh, formula. Well, scholars that disagree, there's really only one scholar outside of the church that's paid attention to the Book of Abraham in the last 100 years, and that's Robert Rittner. And Robert Rittner didn't make it into the first version of the CBS letter, and he, he makes it in as an addendum to the second version. Uh, but most scholars outside of the church completely ignore the Book of Abraham because they don't care. It's just not of any interest to them, and, and there's really no motivation. And Robert Rittner, I think, was it John? No, it's Kerry Molstein who was his student. And so he was sort of drawn into this, and he wrote a rebuttal to the church's uh, essay on the Book of Abraham, the Gospel Topics essay. And just a correction, I think, I think it's John Gee who's a student of his. And again, I don't... I don't want the audience to think like I'm trying to attack you and want no, no, you I, to be embarrassed at your credibility. I don't. I don't think that at all. I th- again, I think these are messy waters and there's a ton of data. Um, I just want to try where we can to correct each other right, and be clear. Right, it is John Gee who's the student of uh, Robert Rittner. Right. So, so, but, but the idea, the impression that people have that that uh, people outside the church have devoted any amount of time or energy to researching the book of Abraham. That's just, that's just simply false. Uh, the only people that are paying attention to the book of Abraham for the most part, other than Robert Rittner are people within the church. And so a lot of people say, well, how can I take their conclusions seriously? Because obviously they're just apologists and they're just, you know, whatever for, for, uh, for the church. Um, uh, you know, this, this was one of the challenges that Dad had when he would quote Hugh Nibley in his book. And somebody would say, well, nobody agrees with Hugh Nibley. You can't quote Hugh Nibley. And Dad would say, well, except for on all of these issues with the Book of Mormon, Hugh Nibley is the only one that has made any comment at all. They don't disagree with him either because they're not paying attention to him. They're not taking the Book of Mormon seriously enough to consider the kinds of issues that Hugh Nibley considers when he approaches the ancient milieu for the Book of Mormon. So I think we have some of the same thing happening with the Book of Abraham to some degree. But with regard to how much papyri we have uh, compared to how much Joseph Smith had, I I think uh, there's no possible way to settle that question. But I think it is inaccurate to suggest that it is likely that what we have is the vast majority of what Joseph Smith had. I think there are enough sources that talk about multiple scrolls and multiple materials that came with these mummies and the description of how some of the fragments were placed under glass, and those are the fragments that have survived. Um, For instance, we have part of facsimile 1, most of facsimile 1, but we don't have facsimile 2 or facsimile 3 in any of this. And uh, so, so if if you were just to take a wild guess, you would say, well, that would mean that two thirds of the material was lost. I mean, we just don't have any idea other than the fragmentary and vague kinds of recollections of the firsthand sources that we have. So, so there's really no way to pin that down. Do you know who Brian Haglett is? Uh, I know the name, and I okay. think I've read some, but I don't know anything about him. So, on one level. Some want to dismiss him because he's not an Egyptologist by trade. He, he's not a trained 
uh, you know, with a with a diploma or with some kind of degree in Egyptology. On the other hand, the the guy has made a life's work out of it to the point where the church has trusted him uh, and another uh, member, Robin Scott Jensen, to head up the Joseph Smith Papers project on this particular okay. issue. Okay, yeah, that's uh, name, I think that's worse. okay. Uh, Brian or uh, Brian Haglid and uh, Robin Scott Jensen, both having worked with the Joseph Smith Papers and all the original documentation, Brian is well respected within Mormonism. He seems to be one of these guys who um, he's a, he's an active member. Um, he seems to be fair and balanced. He seems to call out when there's bad scholarship and acknowledge where there's good scholarship. Um, Brian recently had a very he acknowledged a very deep shift in his view on this issue. I just want to read his quote because I think it's important. It, it feels, uh, and again, I don't, I don't want to come off as attacking you in any way. I, I, it feels as if there's John Gee and Kerry Molstein and then those who repeat them and that John Gee and Kerry Molstein are making some really bad arguments uh, in terms of making space for a missing scroll. Here's what Brian says. And, and you can, we can dismiss Brian. We can, Validate Brian. It doesn't, I'm, just, I'm just adding this so the listener is aware and so that you're aware. Brian Haglid said, For the record, I no longer hold the views that have been quoted from my 2010 book in the videos that Dan Vogel published. I have moved from my days as an outrageous apologist. In fact, I'm no longer interested or involved in apologetics in any way. I wholeheartedly agree, agree with Dan Vogel's excellent assessment of the Abraham Egyptian documents in these videos. I now reject a missing Abraham manuscript, and I agree that two of the Abraham manuscripts were simultaneously dictated. I agree that the Egyptian papers were used to produce the Book of Abraham, and I agree that only Abraham 1, uh, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 18, were produced in 1835, and that Abraham 2, 19 through 5, 21 were produced in Nauvoo, uh, and on and on. I no longer agree with Guy and Molstein. I find their apologetic scholarship on the book of Abraham abhorrent. One can find that I've changed my mind in recent and forthcoming publications. The most recent, Joseph Smith Papers, Revelations and Translation, Volume 4, the book of Abraham and related manuscripts now on the shelves, is much more open to Dan Vogel's thinking on the origin of the Book of Abraham. And, and I, I want to state here that Brian Haglid had been a, a partner in several publications with John Gee on the Book of Abraham. They had worked together. Brian used to hold the view that, there, that, that the way we make this work is a missing scroll, and if not that, then a catalyst theory. What Brian is now saying, and I've had conversations with Brian behind the scenes, and, and again, that's that's neither here nor there, but there seems to be a recognition from him that a missing scroll and a catalyst theory uh, don't seem to be tenable. That once he dove into the manuscripts and the data, both him and Robin Scott Jensen seem to acknowledge that we're going to have to come up with some other understanding of the book of Abraham than pointing to a missing scroll or pointing to a catalyst theory because all the documentation uh, imposes that we need to, to leave those two behind. And again, I'm not going to, I, I don't want to be seen as putting you on the spot and blindsiding you with that, because I, I recognize again that Guy and Molstein do stand behind those theories. 
I'm only saying that I, I, I agree with Brian that I see Guy and Molstein's arguments as weak and not supported by the evidence, um, and that I would want the listener to realize this issue is much more complex than simply saying like, oh, John Gee and Kerry Molstein, they're Egyptologists, they're Mormon, and let's just take their word for it, because I think there's some deep problems with the way that they opposed it. Well, I don't feel like you put me on the spot. I, I mean, neither one of us are equipped to be able to discuss Egyptology with any degree of uh, proficiency. Uh, but it's interesting, as you talk about this, you say, okay, so Brian Hagelin, he's an active member of the church. Uh, he rejects both the long scroll and the catalyst theory. So my question is, so so does he think the Book of Abraham is a fraud? Uh, he has not uh, spoken on that publicly, and so I, I don't know where he specifically stands in terms of what he thinks the Book of Abraham is. Uh, although I, I think that he recognizes by that statement that I read that Dan Vogel, who thinks that the Book of Abraham is on some level of fraud, that Brian at least acknowledges that he agrees with Dan Vogel's uh, research uh, and the way that he's framed those videos. Well, because the only other option, I, uh, John Gee actually uh, outlined this in his introduction to the Book of Abraham. Uh, where he talks about, okay, you can say that the book of Abraham is a fraud. You can have the cat. And essentially the gospel topics essay does this too. Either it's a fraud or there's material that, that, that was burned up. That was the source, or it was a catalyst for a revelation. Uh, and the only other possible explanation for it would be somehow that every Egyptologist has gotten it wrong. And the book of breathings really is the text of the book of Abraham. And so, I, so if, if Brian is saying, um, and now I'm on a first name basis with him, I don't know him, but if, but if he's saying, okay, well, I reject the catalyst theory and I reject the long scroll theory, uh, he has to be saying that it's a fraud, or else he's saying something. I, mean, I, I don't see any room for any other kind of conclusion. Well, I thought you had presented so a couple things. One is that um, there's all because there's so much data here, and I've got to end. Uh, in fact, let's just end it here so we can pick back up because I think there's issues to talk about in terms of the the red rubric. Um, there's issues to talk about in terms of what does Abraham one one, uh, sorry one twelve through one fourteen. What do those impose? What do those do those corner us? Uh, and then to kind of go off and and maybe talk about uh, what I thought was a third option. Be, or I should say a fourth option besides fraud. Besides Catalyst, besides Missing Scroll, I thought you had made an argument in your response about the idea that uh, both sides could be right, that these characters could have been repurposed somewhere along the way. And so the Egyptologists are right that by Egyptology standards, it does not translate to the Book of Abraham. And on the other hand, somewhere along the way, uh, somebody trying to preserve these stories repurposed these documents. And I want to have a conversation about that as well. Um, but let's let's pick up next time. Uh, I think you did fantastic today, Jim. Um, if if I were a judge giving points and, and you and I are in competition, I would have I would have labeled uh, episode one probably a tie, and I would have actually given you probably the victory here in part two. Um, but I'm hoping that as we sit down, that these conversations will continue to be dynamic and, and interesting to people. Well, that's very kind of you. I really hope you're not seeing this as a competition. I'm not. 
I, I, I no, 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 not between you I, and me, but between I, ideas. I, I, my goal is not necessarily to convince people that I'm right. My goal is to demonstrate that it is possible to look at these issues and come out with a testimony on the other side. And yeah, fully. Also yeah. to be able to respect those that don't. I mean, those like you who have looked at these issues and say, I can't, you know, I can't reconcile this. It, uh, I, I have full respect for anybody who is willing to be able to confront these issues and go wherever their faith journey takes them. So Yeah, yeah. And you and you acknowledged in part one that the Book of Abraham is much more problematic than say the Book of Mormon. Um and, and so I, I don't think we're we're on opposite sides of the spectrum, you know, launching rocks at each other. I think this is a matter of the two of us having a conversation, uh sharing what we understand about the data and allowing people to see the complexity and to then be interested enough in the conversation to go learn more and figure things out. Right. Yeah. So I, again, appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to the next one. And again, I just think these have been a lot of fun. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun on this end too. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Taking out my issues never healed